Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 Russia drops charges against Prigozhin and those who took part in the brief rebellion It seems to me based on Putin's past performance uh, that uh, Prigozhin is a marked man Another WhatsApp message emerges that allegedly points right to the Bidens. You have this really rather incredible story of Hunter Biden clearly evading taxes. Bud Light offers $15 beer rebates for 4th of July weekend amid another decline in sales. Now there's going to be a lot more oversight over whether, you know, a single advertising executive can tank the whole company. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Wednesday, June 28th. I'm Mike Scott. On Tuesday, mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin arrived in Belarus. All part of an agreement struck between the mercenary leader and Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. The FSB, Russia's main domestic security agency, says that it had dropped the criminal charges and investigation into last week's revolt. No charges against Prigozhin or any of the other participants, even though about a dozen Russian troops were killed in clashes. Experts are left scratching their heads because allowing such a display as an open revolt against the Kremlin to go unpunished was extremely unusual for Vladimir Putin. In fact, during his speech Saturday, the Russian president used the term treason to refer to Prigozhin's brief uprising. Retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton is a military analyst and founder and chairman of Cedric Layton and Associates, a strategic risk and management consulting firm. And he joins the Daybreak Insider podcast to try to make sense of the rebellion in Russia. The real issue here is basically it's a leadership challenge. And uh, the guy who was challenging Putin is a guy named Yevgeny Prigozhin. And uh, Prigozhin is the head of something known as the Wagner Group. And the Wagner Group is a mercenary army. Uh, they have been doing all kinds of things. They're very active in Africa. They're very active in Syria, doing things for or on behalf of the Russian government, uh, but they're not really part of the Russian government. At least that's the you know story that we're being told. Uh, but that's a bit of a fiction because Russia is a very different uh, entity, really a very different kind of government than what we're used to. Fast forward to, to Ukraine, and the Wagner Group has been very active in uh, getting into um, the uh, getting into the, the fight in Ukraine and uh, specifically around the town of Bakhmut. The problem that you run into, though, is that a lot of those people that the Wagner Group hired were actually convicts, so they weren't ex-service members like was usually the case 
for Wagner Group members. Uh, many of them were convicts all the way up to murderers and rapists and, you know, people like that. Uh, and they were the ones that uh, took the fight uh, and, you know, prosecuted over a 10-month period, prosecuted that fight uh, around Bakhmut, and they were finally able to capture it. So what made the Wagner Group turn on Vladimir Putin? Uh, there was an issue about them getting ammunition, an issue about them uh, getting pay, uh, issues about them uh, being treated uh, with the respect they think they deserve. That engendered, at least in part, uh, this effort by Prigozhin to challenge Putin uh, for leadership. And uh, he made it all the way about 124 miles away from Moscow and then decided to turn around. When it became clear he didn't get support from anybody else for this uh, mutiny, I guess we'll call it, since it wasn't really a coup because it didn't get very far in that sense. But yeah, basically what you're talking about is a mutiny uh, that, um, I, you know, just, uh, you know, at the, at the moment uh, has not, uh, it, it was not successful. Was there another reason for the Wagner Group's rebellion? He does not believe that the Ministry of Defense, uh, led by a guy named Sergei Shoigu, or uh, the uh, general staff, which is kind of like our Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the head of that is a guy named uh, General Gerasimov, uh, who is also now in charge of the war in Ukraine. Uh, he doesn't think that uh, they have prosecuted the war uh, appropriately or professionally. And he's actually right about that. Uh, but that is, uh, you know, in essence, the, the issue where all of these things are coming together and they're not able to um, actually, uh, you know, get the right supplies, get the right weapons, all of those kinds of things. And he also believes, Prigozhin also believes, that uh, the Russians, uh, the Russian army, actually came after uh, and attacked elements of the Wagner force in Ukraine. So that was the precipitating event. Why didn't the Wagner group get as much support around Russia as Prigozhin thought he would get? Uh, but the Wagner group uh, you know, does have a lot of support with some elements of Russian society. Uh, other elements, though, uh, look at it as, uh, you know, kind of like we do, as being an organization of thugs and uh, basically robber, robbers. So this is, you know, it's, it's a lesser of two evils kind of thing. And uh, the key thing with um, Putin being able to maintain his uh, hold on uh, power, at least for the moment, was that none of the oligarchs, uh, all those you know, rich people in, uh, that support the Putin government in Russia, none of the oligarchs, none of the military leaders, uh, and uh, none of the intelligence service chiefs uh, switch sides uh, in favor of Prigozhin. They don't want Prigozhin to be in charge. Uh, they're comfortable enough with Putin being in charge, uh, but uh, they are they are definitely not. Uh, uh, you know, not not in favor of uh, having uh, a Prigozhin in charge. Shortly after the mutiny ended, some foreign policy leaders believe that the event may have been staged in order for Vladimir Putin to shore up support at home. Is there any validity to these claims? I think it is possible that elements of this were actually staged. There's, there's, there's something fishy, as they would say, about uh, uh, this agreement uh, that uh, Prigozhin uh, reached with Putin uh, with, through the good offices of the um, uh, 
uh, of the Belarus president, Lukashenko. Uh, so the, the agreement to, to end all of this, uh, to end the standoff, if you will, or at least the, uh, the movement of the Wagner groups toward Moscow, uh, that uh, agreement brokered by Lukashenko called for, in, in essence, the disbanding of the Wagner group. And uh, Prigozhin wanted to avoid that. Uh, so uh, it, it's, there's something about this that uh, uh, you know, doesn't quite pass the smell test uh, because uh, it all seems too easy. What indications are there that the mutiny was legitimate? But on the other hand, uh, there were people. There, there were people on the Russian side who were killed. Uh, there were several aircrafts that were downed. One of them had a crew of at least ten people on it, uh, and uh, all of them were lost. So uh, you know, this wasn't quite the bloodless affair that some people would have us believe it was, and that um, you know does you know speak to the other side of this that it may not in fact have been staged, but it was just the act of an angry man who uh, uh, you know had a partial plan in place but not a complete plan. What has the rebellion from the Wagner Group exposed regarding Vladimir Putin's grip on power? The confusion of the leadership, the um, way in which uh, they were able to, the uh, Wagner Group was able to penetrate and circumvent uh, the defenses of uh, the Russian troops uh, in and around Rostov, which was the first city that they captured, uh, and then really all the way up to, you know, within about 120 miles of Moscow. Um, that speaks to a lot of weaknesses in the Russian structure itself. So the all-encompassing question is this. How will these events impact the war in Ukraine? For the war in Ukraine, what I think that means is that at uh, some point in the not-too-distant future, we're going to see some significant problems for the um, uh, the uh, Russian military, because they won't be able to take over all of the missions uh, that the Wagner Group had. And uh, it's also going to be a manpower issue, because when the Wagner Group leaves Ukraine, which they supposedly have done, uh, or in the process of doing, depending on which report you read, uh, then they won't have necessarily the manpower that they need in order to uh, take over those positions. So the Ukrainians could very well take advantage of this, and they could be uh, in a position where they could recapture a fair amount of territory. Their goal is, of course, to throw the Russians out of Ukraine, and they uh, may even be able to recapture some of the lands that they lost as far back as 2014. If history is any indication, Vladimir Putin is hardly the type of man to let things go. Should Prigozhin start sleeping with one eye open? I think that uh, in this particular case, uh, he is uh, you know, going to Belarus or supposedly has already landed there. Uh, and uh, Belarus is a client state of Russia. Uh, the security services of Belarus and Russia work very closely together. Uh, and uh, you know, the kinds of things that uh, Putin called Prigozhin traitor, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, somebody who has uh, violated his trust. Uh, those kinds of things indicate that Putin is not willing to forget any of what happened. Uh, so it seems to me, based on Putin's past performance in, in situations similar to this, uh, that uh, Prigozhin is a marked man. So 
Assess for the Daybreak Insider the latest on the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Because it took so long to get the counteroffensive rolling for the Ukrainians, uh, the Russians were able to build up a fair, fairly extensive system of defenses, uh, trenches, uh, tank traps, uh, things known as dragon's teeth, which are designed to uh, make it harder for tanks to roll through open countryside. Um, plus, they're using air power. So one of the big weaknesses for the Ukrainians is the fact that they don't have uh, control of the skies over their own country. Um, but the key thing to keep in mind is uh, what the territory looks like. So there have been uh, movements, especially in the Donbass region and also in the Zaporizhia region, which is in the southern part of the country, uh, that uh, indicate that the Ukrainians are making some steady progress at this moment in time. Looking forward, is there anything that Americans should keep an eye on in Ukraine? The key thing is that uh, the uh, in the air in the air picture, uh, the Russians have uh, jets, fighter jets like the Su-35, which have been pretty effective, and the Ukrainians are having a difficult time countering that. If the Ukrainians had F-16s or similar aircraft, they would be better able to counter uh, the Russian Su-35s and and other fighters that they that they currently possess. So that um, you know is, is something we should watch out for. It won't. Uh, be a panacea, you know, an immediate panacea for the Ukrainians. But eventually, uh, when they do get uh, F-16s, and uh, of course, they'll need to train up the pilots, that will probably take a minimum of five months, uh, probably longer uh, when you count maintenance crews and things like that. So probably in about a year, you might be able to see something like that. But the Ukrainians need results quicker than that. And that's going to be something that, uh, you know, if they can prosecute this war in a way where they cut the land bridge between Crimea and the Donbass, you will have had a major success uh, from a military perspective. And then that's the kind of thing that we'll have to watch out for whether or not they can do that. The Daybreak Insider would like to thank Colonel Cedric Layton for joining us. To hear more from Colonel Layton, follow him on Twitter at Cedric Layton. The House Oversight Committee has released another WhatsApp text message that seems to point directly to the Biden family in running an alleged corrupt influence peddling scheme. Last Thursday, the first message was released by the House Oversight Committee, and it allegedly shows Hunter Biden threatening a Chinese official in order to get a payout of a large sum of money. Now, another message has come to light, and it raises even more questions than answers. This comes on the heels of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announcing that House Republicans want U.S. Attorney in Delaware David Weiss to respond to allegations from IRS whistleblowers who claim that Weiss was blocked from bringing more serious charges against Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden recently pled guilty to two tax misdemeanors and struck a deal with federal prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge. Some critics believe the deal struck for the president's son was because of who his father was, which prompted Senate Republicans to demand a special counsel to look into it. Byron York is the chief political correspondent for the Washington Examiner, and he joined the Salem Radio Network to talk about the Hunter Biden investigation. David Weiss, the uh, U.S. attorney in Delaware, which 
which uh, everyone points out is the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Delaware, said that he wanted to uh, indict or investigate uh, uh, Hunter Biden in the District of Columbia, but that the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia said no. Um, Shepley also believes something similar happened in California. These are where, uh, if you look at the Hunter Biden case, he seems to have committed real tax evasion crimes uh, in Washington, D.C. and in California. And uh, Weiss said that he that he was turned down and that he wanted, uh, because he had been turned down by the U.S. attorneys, he wanted uh, special counsel status. He wanted to be like Jack Smith uh, or uh, John Durham, have special counsel status to do anything he wants anywhere he wants, and that he was turned down for this. York pinpoints the moment when the House Speaker decided that U.S. Attorney Weiss had to answer questions from Congress. Well, what happened uh, after that is that Shapley and his uh, advisors, uh, his lawyer, uh, came out with a statement with five witnesses by name who said these people were at the meeting and they say they heard the same thing. Um, so it's really a pretty strong case. And that was when, when, when this statement was released, that's when Kevin McCarthy said, look, we have to have an investigation into this. David Weiss has to answer these questions before the House in person. Um, and now there's talk about a special counsel. The columnist believes there are many more twists and turns to the Hunter Biden investigation that have yet to be revealed. Weiss, by, by the way, has said the opposite publicly, that he's not uh, that he hasn't been in any way limited in what he's doing. So so clearly you have a handful. I mean, you have not one, not two, not three, not four or five witnesses who say they were in the meeting and they heard David Weiss say this. Uh, and the other thing is, I mean, there's there's also kind of this circumstantial evidence here, which is that um, you have the two whistleblowers, not just Shapley, but the other whistleblower, the one who I've written about today, um, who have given uh, testimony. He the, the second one is uh, anonymous, and he has more hands-on, detailed information about the case. And you have this really rather incredible story of Hunter Biden clearly uh, evading taxes um, and this investigation never even getting close to charging him with evading taxes. There are still two big questions that a special counsel could answer for the American people. The indictment on or the, the plea bargain uh, for a couple of misdemeanors here. Uh, I mean, before that, when we had we had no idea, what no way of knowing how whether the investigation into Hunter Biden was serious or not serious. So the the case for the the um, the special counsel is two things. It's one, the slap on the wrist um, plea agreement, and two, it's the testimony of not one, not two, but many um, responsible IRS officials saying that the um, the U.S. Uh, attorney involved basically told them that his hands were tied in this matter. The Oversight Committee and the whistleblowers are working together and have produced the first steps toward an impeachment inquiry into Attorney General Merrick Garland. 
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has vowed that House Republicans will investigate wherever the facts will lead. Just in time for your 4th of July backyard barbecue, Bud Light is offering a rebate of up to $15 on purchases of a 15-pack of Budweiser or Bud Light, which means that in places where 15-packs sell for less than $15, the beer could practically be free. This comes on the heels of Anheuser-Busch battling plummeting sales in the wake of a boycott because of their partnership with a transgender influencer, Dylan Mulvaney. Author and political commentator Molly Hemingway joined the Salem Radio Network and weighed in on Bud Light's continued troubles. I have seen almost nobody drinking Bud Light since this began. I mean, I have seen it like in the wild once, but it's, it's shocking. Like even if you go to sporting venues or places where you would normally see quite a bit. But yeah, people just, people don't want to be insulted and they don't want to be attacked uh, for, they don't just, they just, This was a horrible decision by Bud Light to go down this road. If companies still want to push their politics on consumers, Hemingway believes they have the right, but it may cost them. Well, the risk to becoming, the risk to doing what Bud Light did and what so many corporations have done is now becoming quite clear. You can be bullied by the left into adopting the most extreme of their political Uh, objectives and putting it into your advertising, you can do that, but you may actually destroy your company if you do it. And that's why it's so important what normal people did here in this Bud Light scenario, because the left has done such a good job of weaponizing so many systems that affect corporate decision-making, and they've been able to get away with it for a very long period of time, while most of America was just sort of hoping that everyone, everyone would stop being so crazy. And now they realize, like, okay, we actually have to do something in order to stop this insanity from happening and taking over literally every product that we buy. Looking ahead, Hemingway believes that many companies will think twice about insulting a core customer base. You had a lot of people allowing decisions to be made by a sector of their corporation that was very, um, you know, very politically engaged and, and, and they could just kind of get away with this. And now there's going to be a lot more oversight over whether, you know, a single advertising executive can tank the whole company. And just people will be reluctant, as they should be. I mean, of course, with advertising, there's always some transmission of values. But when the values are so controversial, it's really not something you're going to see people leaning into as much, even with the system still in place that encourage corporations to do this type of behavior, which those do need to be dismantled. The company has announced partnerships with country music and NFL stars in the hopes of winning back some of their lost customers. And finally... Can there ever be a real replacement for iconic game show host Pat Sajak from The Wheel of Fortune? Probably not. But Ryan Seacrest admits that he has large shoes to fill as the new host of the game show. Seacrest has signed a multi-year deal to host Wheel of Fortune beginning in 2024 after Sajak's 41st season. Sajak, who announced this month he would step down from the show next year after four decades on the show, says he'll stay on as a consulting producer. 
While it would have been nice to stay on indefinitely, Sajak does say it's time to step down. We're getting near the end. I mean, it's been a long time. We're not going to do this for another 40 years. Sajak hosted the show's daytime edition from 1981 to 1989 and started hosting the show's syndicated version in 1983. The show's co-host, Vanna White, first joined in 1982, kicking off four decades of the pair appearing on home screens everywhere. Sajak also has the record for the longest career as a game show host for the same show, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Mark Malkin is senior editor for Variety and says that the Wheel of Fortune crew has known that Sajak would be stepping down for some time. I don't think Pat's retirement probably came as a big shock to the higher-ups. This is a very planned business decision. We know Ryan is personable. We know he knows these kind of formats really well. As for who will turn the letters after Sajak's departure, Malkin believes it may still be Vanna White. I think the odds are pretty well for Vanna White to do it. I mean, obviously, she's done it in the past. It stays with the brand. For his part, Seacrest says he's been looking for a job like this his whole career. He told the New York Times in 2009 he wanted to emulate Wheel of Fortune creator Merv Griffin's career. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at srnnews.com and townhall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott.